This week on the Backtable Podcast. We've had a couple of trials over the years that have suggested that atherectomy in general and laser in specific can change the compliance of a vessel and also reduce the dissections. That's been shown in smaller studies and also over time. So this sort of proved that out a little bit in that there is a change to the compliance, probably a reduction in the mean balloon pressure required, the dissection rate, and the need for bailout stenting. And, you know, if you think about the bare metal stent use here, it was about 30%. And I think that in general, what we see is that those that are proponents of atherectomy are also proponents against long segment stenting. That's not a hard and fast rule, but we definitely do see that when you use atherectomy, you tend to stent a little bit less. And as we've gotten better tools for drug elution, I think that's continued to be probably more so than even in the last decade when we didn't have drug elution. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Now a quick word from our sponsor. A patient with PAD can show symptoms in a variety of ways. This presents unique challenges when choosing a treatment option that is effective in improving outcomes across a broad spectrum of arterial disease. Angiodynamics Aurean system changes everything. Using cutting edge laser tech that can aspirate anywhere, featuring a 355 nanometer wavelength and 25 nanosecond pulse width, the Aurean system conquers disease with science in a way no other platform does. With the most versatile laser on the market, the Aurean system is able to treat PAD, ISR, CLI, and ALI, whether it's above the knee or below the knee. Different from most lasers, the RN system's 3.5 photon energy allows it to spare the vessel wall while attacking lesions. This safety profiles while leading interventionalists have chosen the RN system to treat more than 25,000 patients over the last two years and deliver improved quality of limbs and lives. Visit arian-system.com to learn more. And now back to the show. My name is Chris Beck. I'm going to be your host today, vascular and interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. we got an excellent topic lined up for you today. Our topic is going to be in the PAD world. We're going to be discussing atherectomy and specifically laser atherectomy, laser. To help us with this, we have Dr. Tony Dost. Tony, I got a little bit off the website, but I don't, what I'll summarize to say is Tony is an interventional cardiologist, does a lot of peripheral work. And um, Tony, I'll just leave it to you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the practice. Sure. Thank you very much, Chris. So as you said, I am an interventional cardiologist. I've been doing uh, vascular work for over 20 years. I was one of the founding members of the Viva Vascular Education course in Las Vegas. We just celebrated our 21st year this year. So that was very a cool. great accomplishment. Yeah. My background is that I am currently the uh, system chief of uh development and um, strategy at the Baylor Heart Hospital, and I also run vascular there. My other role is uh, head of digital health and innovation at that same center, and I started a practice called Connected Cardiovascular Care Associates, which is a digital-first practice where we take digital tools and uh, use those to evaluate and assess patients in between their office and their hospital visits, and I'm based in Dallas, Texas. Hold on. Uh, I got to know a little bit more about that. Like... um... (laughs) So what is that exactly like? Like, how does that play out? I kind of missed it. Like, I was I was just hearing, like, the regular, like, hey, this is my practice. I'm at Baylor. And then this sounds very different. 
Right. So, you know, my academic hat is, uh, you know, strategy and business development and vascular interventions at Baylor. But my practice hat, and I'm in a private practice, but our goal is to try to take digital tools, whether it be wearables or other types of devices where we can manage patients with heart failure, atrial fibrillation, even vascular conditions, and uh, untether their care. And that's been an interest of mine for about a decade. And we've done a bunch of work in the wearable field uh, doing that. And this practice was sort of dedicated, called Connected Cardiovascular Care for that exact reason. Incidentally, I started this particular practice after running my previous practice for over 20 years in November of 2019, very timely, as you know, what happened three months later, sure, which was sure. the, the need for telemedicine and, and remote care. So it was uh, somewhat fortuitous to uh, start this <laughs> at that time, right? Yeah, you were, you were at the right place for a while. You just had to wait, wait for the right time. No, I think you're right about that. Well, that's very cool. Um, we may uh, come back to that because that's that's a juicy topic in of itself. But like, let's let's jump into it. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, what I wanted to do is just kind of set the scene for like we're going to skip a lot of stuff about talking about peripheral arterial disease, like uh, how important it is, the prevalence, referral patterns, all that stuff. We got a lot of content on that, and I'll link to some other episodes where we talk about that. But I do want to get into the meat of it. But I do want to set the scene as far as like. Just broad strokes, atherectomy, Tony, like how do you think about it and where, like how does it fit into your practice? And, and by that, I mean like who's getting atherectomy, who's not getting atherectomy, and you have a lot of choices with after, atherectomy. So what, what's your thought process there? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it, you know, for some people, atherectomy is a little bit more of a religion than a science, right? So you sort of believe in it <laughs> yeah, and there may right. not be quite as much uh, science as you like. But over time, we've continued to develop the science in this space. I think of atherectomy as an adjunctive tool. It rarely is a standalone. Uh, I think that there are lesions that really require a change in their overall response to balloon angioplasty or stenting, meaning we want to change their compliance. We use that as kind of a broad term, but calcified lesions, we want to do something to make them less likely to dissect and have complications from balloon angioplasty, more fibrotic lesions or instant restenosis. We want to ablate some of that plaque. So I think of it as uh, an enabling tool. And depending on the type of lesion we're talking about, different forms of atherectomy seem to make more sense. And we can talk a little bit about where we want to use certain types and where other types may be more helpful. For sure. So one of the things I wanted to get at is um, atherectomy as an adjunct. So in your practice, there's atherectomy plus. Is it atherectomy? Let, let's exclude stenting for a second. Is it atherectomy plus POBA, atherectomy plus DCB, or depends on where, depends on? Yeah, it a little bit depends on where, but I think that, you know, the DCB data has gotten so strong and we finally put to bed the issue of whether there was a mortality uh, signal for DCB. And I think that's a topic that really kind of sidetracked us for about two years. Uh, but now we understand that, you know, this is a safe technology. It's a durable technology. So for me, typically, if the balloon sizes exist, especially in the above-the-knee territory, it's atherectomy plus drug-eluting balloon for the majority of the cases. I, I know that people can give whole lectures on this, but if you want to talk about the different choices that we have with atherectomy, and then we'll kind of zero in on where you like laser and, and then for what reasons. Okay. So just to kind of put in kind of broad terms, there's kind of ablative technologies kind of come in a couple of different flavors, right? There's 
rotational atherectomy. And for those of us that are cardiologists, we used rotablator even before there was any form of atherectomy for the lower extremity. And those were devices that had a diamond-tipped burr, and we used those to rotate at 150, 160,000 RPMs. And we used them for calcified lesions and usually smaller vessels down into the tibials especially. And then came orbital atherectomy, which could give you a much larger lumen because the actual, the crown itself was rotating off-centered, and so you could get larger lumens. And we tend to use those in more calcified plaque as well. And when there's more soft plaque and there's a need for excising or ablating, we use laser for instant restenosis. We approved that out in a couple of different trials. And excisional atherectomy with eccentric plaque ablation, like Silverhawk and the eccentric plaque uh, of those type is kind of how I think about it. Now, you can overlap those in different places, and I think there's needs for some of those. But for the most part, if you have something that's fibrotic, uh, and soft, you tend not to want to use orbital. If you have things that are more fibrotic and hard, you might want to use that. And then I, I use laser a lot. I use laser to sort of change the compliance of the vessel, whether it's moderately calcified or fibrotic. And instant restenosis, I almost exclusively use it there. So we talked about broad strokes about different uh, atherectomy devices and, and where and uh, what types of lesions. So actually, oh, sorry, w- what we didn't mention though is like, where you like each one. So, I mean, maybe you divide it between above the knee and below the knee. You know, like uh, this device, if we're in smaller vessels, this device for bigger vessels, all things being equal, or is it more cal- like a more hard, soft kind of discussion? Yeah, I think for me, it's a little bit more above the knee, below the knee. It really does break back into hard, soft, because if I got calcified, my tendency is to use something that's going to be uh, more ablative uh, orbital atherectomy or even excisional atherectomy. But soft plaque, you can use pretty much anything there. And what we've learned is that the higher and higher energies that laser atherectomy al- affords us, even calcified plaque can be well uh, suited for that. And in the very small, very heavily calcified, you know, we have the ability to use very high energies for laser, and that does change the compliance for those. So I think it's a little bit of both of those topics, right? So Above the knee, I like using excisional atherectomy, and I also like to use orbital atherectomy. And the SFA can be a combination, sometimes laser for instant restenosis or fibrotic tissue, sometimes orbital atherectomy for more calcified but less fibrotic and soft. For instant, almost always laser. And then below the knee, you can use actually any one of those types, right? I tend to use laser below the knee a fair amount because the lesions are pretty fibrotic, they're diffuse, they're long. Oftentimes they're calcified, and oftentimes the only thing that'll go through after a wire goes through is a laser because you don't have to change to a different type of wire. So uh, that's the one big advantage of using something that doesn't require a, you know a unique wire to, to be able to deploy it. I'm going to sidetrack you for a second. When you're above the knee, do you like to use uh, distal protection? That's a good question. You know, in the laser trials, we've seen that the amount of distal embolization is actually very minimal, but we know when you compare all of the different devices, there's about an 11% chance that anything and everything is going to embolize. So I think that if I have a lot of debris, that potential, and not just more focal lesions, I will use distal protection, but probably that's only about 15 to 20% of the time. More so, uh, more often than not, I won't use it because we just don't see that much distal embolization, particularly with ablative techniques like laser. Got it. 
So at the backup and ask you about your practice again, do you have some patients that you see in hospital and some patients that are in like an outpatient based lab situation, like both, both kind of venues? I do. I, I have been part of an outpatient OBL, now a hybrid lab, ASC OBL, since um, 2011. And uh, we've also done plenty of procedures in the hospital outpatient department and inpatients as well. I'd say it's probably about 25% uh, are in the outpatient lab. That's mainly because of our scheduling issues, but uh, a lot of it's our elective outpatients done at the hospital as well. So the reason I ask is, uh, we get we have a fair number of viewers who uh, have their own labs or or want their own OBLs, and so I was just going to ask uh, just for that like particular um, audience uh, niche, if you if you had to choose one atherectomy device, two or or like I guess what's your recommendation if you if you have a lab and there's you know, there's constraints with money, experience, maybe even you know storage, like how many devices do you recommend having on hand or is it like just get to know one really well and this will this will serve you yeah it's a good question and i think it's one that probably requires an answer that that hedges this a little bit because i think that you need something i think you need something that that really does uh, affect calcium uh and then you need something that affects all long ablative so i would use laser which i use the majority of my atherectomy is with laser mainly because i think it works in a lot of different uh, areas in the lower extremity. And then there are times when you just need something that's going to take care of calcium in a more focal lesion. Now, interesting thing is that answer has changed a little bit since we added shockwave to the mix. So there are times when we add, you know, uh, lithotripsy at common femorals when we previously would have done ablative therapy followed by, by drug-eluting balloons. So that, that answer may have changed a little bit now. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanism of action for laser athermectomy? I mean, I, I wouldn't pretend to be proficient, but some of the things that I've seen is photochemical, photothermal, photomechanical. And for me, like some of these definitions overlap a little bit, but I'd like to hear from your perspective, like how does it work and and what's going on behind the scenes of the tech? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, you have to become a little bit of a physics nerd to understand exactly sure, what's right, happening right. with laser. And I think that the important thing here is to understand that the mechanism really does also beget the technique. Because if you think about what you're doing, you're creating energy, and there's several kinds of lasers, right? We've been used to using the Spectronetics Phillips laser, which is, which is an excimer laser, also known as excited dimer, right? So two gases that basically interact together and create this energy. And that energy that's created comes at a certain wavelength. And because of that, it has certain interactions with tissue. So the general idea is that you create an energy, it comes out at a certain pulse width, it has a certain repetition, and it's at a certain density, meaning millijoules per millimeter squared. So if you take all those things into account, you're basically taking the heat of the laser and its quick dissipation, how it interacts with the tissue, and each of the carbon-carbon bonds of the plaque are being affected by the photomechanical properties of the laser. So this photothermal, photomechanical, We talk about all of those because they are overlapping, but in general, what we're doing is we're trying to take plaque and we're trying to change its morphology from a solid surface of maybe a fibrous surface into basically carbon dioxide and water. And we vaporize that and let the body's own create, you know, basically let that uh, dissipate through uh, the blood. And so that's the goal for laser uh, atherectomy. 
So does that make sense? Yes, yes, as much as it can for a blockhead like me. Um, <laughs> but I'm hoping it makes more sense for uh, you have ed- our educated, uh, very intelligent audience out there. So with laser, and, and maybe it depends on the device and certainly most likely depends on the size of the device that you're using, are there laser components with also suction or um, aspiration? Like it's got an aspiration component to the device. Yes. So the Orion laser uh, is a laser that does that. The 2.0 and the 2.3 versions do have the ability for thrombectomy. If you think about one other thing that laser does, in addition to changing how the plaque is going to behave, it also vaporizes thrombus. And this is actually a really unique property of laser. Because of the, the actual wavelength that it sits at, it has a very strong interaction between thrombus and the device. And so if you take, for instance, platelets and you put them into a Petri dish and you apply laser to them at higher and higher energies, the ADP aggregation of those platelets will actually decrease. So there's a direct effect on platelet aggregation. So you can imagine if you have a thrombotic lesion and you apply laser energy at a certain wavelength, roughly between 305 to 355 nanometers, you're going to vaporize some of that thrombus And if you have the additional ability to remove that by thrombectomy, which the Orion laser does, you get the additive benefit, changing the thrombus morphology, vaporizing it, decreasing its likelihood of platelet interaction, and then actually sucking it out. So it's worth thinking about that science a little bit when you're doing the procedures, especially because many of these lesions are a combination of occlusive and thrombotic disease, and you really don't know what you're running into it until you run a laser through it. And what I say, uncover the lesion. Oh, I see. So you like, um, just by running the la- uh, laser through it, you kind of uncover actually what you're dealing with. And, and yeah. then after you do your next run, you see really what was, what was thrombotic and actually what was, you know, your occlusive uh, disease or your um, underlying peripheral vascular disease. That's exactly right. So you can have a long SFA occlusion and after you wire it, instead of just ballooning it basically blindly, you take a laser through there and you vaporize as much of the thrombus and you uncover where the actual lesions are. And it really does reduce the amount of sort of adjunctive therapy. You certainly stenting is reduced by you, by doing that because you can tell there's places that just don't need it at all because they're actually were pretty wide open and the laser uncovered that. So going back to just the nuts and um, bolts of actually using laser atherectomy. So you have a lesion I mean, you can change the scenario if it helps, Tony, but you have a lesion, you cross. Do you have to stay intraluminal for the, to be able to run the laser through? Like, do you have to be uh, intraluminal throughout the entire course of the lesion to run the laser is what I mean? Yeah, I, I think it's preferable, but we frequently, sure. <laughs> it's all, yeah, right, I mean, right. we're, we're frequently very close. So, I mean, you may be in and yeah. out, in and out, in and out. It's kind of like golf. You want to end up luminally and you want to start <laughs> off luminally. So in between, you may be off the course a little bit, but you just don't want to be so far off that you can't get back into the segment that you're interested in. So for the most part, I I don't worry too much about being mildly uh, extraluminal, but certainly you don't want to be very far out. When you do SFA occlusive work, you know, for a long time, you start to get a sense of what you can and can't do. But most of the time, uh, being luminal is the goal. Okay. And then uh, the platforms available, is it all over uh, N014 system? Well, no. The 014 system for the Orion laser, yes. Other lasers, you can go up to an 035 uh, system 
Uh, but typically, we like to stick with 014 because the other ability you have there is to actually inject saline while you're doing it. So back to the science of laser, the interaction between the laser and contrast and the, the creation of microcavitation bubbles is very different between the interaction of laser and water and the size and the, and the energy that those microcavitation bubbles actually dissipate at. So you can reduce dissection and other problems if you have the ability to inject, contra, in, inject saline at the same time. Okay. Is it where you just hook it up to a pressure bag or is it just... Yeah, we inject by hand actually. So I have the tech injecting one cc per second at that speed. Got it. We mentioned different wavelengths. Do you have to pick that setting or is every device that you pull open, that device is set to a certain setting? Do you know what I mean? Or is there anything that you have to tweak on your end? Right. There's a couple of settings that you do tweak, but for the most part, there's really kind of one wavelength because whatever the device is, say for instance, if it's Exmer laser, it's 308 nanometers per second. If it's the Orion solid state laser, it's 355 nanometers because they use different agents to actually get to that wavelength. And so that's already set and that's what's gonna end up happening. The changes that you can make are the repetitions per second and the energy density or the millijoules per millimeter squared. And so I think that those are the two things that you change uh, slightly in these in these um, different types of lasers. And how might you change them to make a difference in you know the, what you're trying to achieve as far as the, the end result? Right. So if you're, if you're looking at the repetition rate, so the faster the repetition rate, the more energy that you're generating in, in one second impulse, right? So with the Orion laser, those are basically in that 40 range. The millijoules per millimeter squared are the energy density. In the Orion laser is 50 or 60. In the Spectronetics Philips laser, the two things that you change are the repetitions so how quickly it's going to fire every second, and also the energy density or the joules. So you can go anywhere from 45 millijoules per millimeter squared to 80 millijoules per millimeter squared, and then up to 25 repetitions per second, all the way up to 80 repetitions per second. And in the Orion, you just have two settings, and that's the 50 and the 60. And it actually works very nicely because... Um, it's sort of set, and because they have different pulse amplitudes, so not to get too nerdy about this, but the fact is that if you have, you know, the ability to deliver an energy pulse in a very short period of time, you can get a high energy in that in that second. So the more quickly you do it, the more energy actually is dissipating the plaque and the less energy that's actually acting on the vessel. That's why safety is so important with laser and is so likely to happen is because of the way it gets delivered. And the Orion laser actually does that very nicely because it's at, you know, 40 nanoseconds. It's like very quick, high amplitude, and you get the energy to the plaque and not so much energy to the vessel wall. And I think that, you know, the Pathfinder study basically suggested that that's why safety was so high, over 95% in those patients. Actually, this is a, this is a perfect like shoehorn into talking about uh, the Pathfinder data. So will you kind of talk about the study, what it was set up for, uh, just, just like set the scene for the study and then what were, what were the goals and you know, ultimately what were the results? Sure. So it was a prospective study. It was single-armed, uh, multi-center. I think there were 10 centers total, open label. It was a registry. Were you guys a, a center? We were, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and, cool. 
And basically what we were wanted to accomplish is safety and efficacy, right? And efficacy essentially was the idea that you finish the procedure, including the laser and any adjunctive therapy that you wanted to use with a less than 30% residual. And then the safety was that you had no major adverse limb events or major adverse events, you know, in the, the actual time frame of the procedure, right? So death, lower extremity amputation, and all the usual things that you would think about. Right, right, right. And so 120, uh, 102 patients were enrolled, typical demographics that you would think for vascular patients. Uh, 121 lesions were treated. And essentially, the lesions were in that 15-centimeter range, you know, relatively typical long-length lesions. They were Rutherford categories two through five, excluding the sixes and excluding the ones. And essentially, it met its endpoints. So safety and efficacy in those patients. And we can go over the numbers in more detail, but essentially it was to take a look at a laser that was very different than the ones that we're used to. And the reason I want to emphasize that is because even though that the wavelength was in the same neighborhood, 355 versus 308, this is a solid state laser, which means it uses not those noble gases like the Exmer laser does, but it uses um, solid state crystals. And so it's a very stable type of, of uh, device. And it's a simple plug-in, 110 volt you know, plug-in. You don't have to use the more complex equipment. It's a uh, kind of a smaller, more nimble unit. Uh, because it doesn't have to enclose those gases inside of the the actual uh, Zamboni that we call it. So uh, I think it's, it's a little bit different than uh, the, than the, the Exmer laser that we're typically used to. So uh, although we sort of use the word laser kind of, you know, generically, there's some Yeah, like everything, right, like everything's a laser yeah. and, and they all, right. But they, but they do work very differently. So I think that the idea here was, is this very unique laser, you know, science, is it safe and is it efficacious in these patients? And it turned out that it that it really was. Well, so go and so let's just start with safety. So how you know, like the question is, how safe was it? So ninety five percent of the patients had no uh, untoward events after the procedure, and that include the big things that we talked about: death, lower extremity amputation, et cetera. And you know, it, in that setting, we would think that there would be things like distal embolization requiring. Uh, surgery, all those kind of things. But that happened less than 5% of the time in a very broad category of patients. So safety was certainly met. Okay. So actually going to, so I did look over uh, the the paper and one thing that did strike me was that at least for the, the demographics, I mean, it's not like chip shots were chosen. I feel like the, the demographics were really what you might see in any like kind of robust peripheral arterial practice. Like it wasn't like just set up for like the short segment, you know, 70% uh, SFA or stenosis. I mean, like you had long segments. You also had like relatively well represented as far as like severity of disease. Was that intentional or is that just what you could enroll and otherwise like enrollment would just take too long? Well, if you think about it, one of the things that's, that's the beauty of registries is that they're real world, right? So here's a situation which you can't really cherry pick the lesions if you want to enroll into the into the trial. So the demographics are essentially what we would expect, right? So mostly males, I think 70% were males, 40% were females, 
there was some diversity in this overall population, not as much as we'd like to see, but there definitely was. And then all the usual comorbidities, right? People had 50% of coronary disease, hypertension, lipid, hyperlipidemia, et cetera. But Rutherford categories, I mean, if you look at the Rutherford categories that were, you know, three, four, and five, that was, you know, 88% of the patients. So very few were Rutherford two, which was only 5%. So even though they were included, it was a minority of the patients. And these patients had pretty significant low performing you know, walking uh, questionnaire scores like less than 39% low performing patients in the majority of the patients, 82% of them had that. So pretty important. And you were describing the lesions, right? So these lesions were either de novo or restenotic. Most of them were uh, de novo lesions, about 70%, and restenotic lesions, about 17%. And they were relatively long. I mean, these were lesions that were average of 14 centimeters length, and then they went up to, you know, in the 40 centimeter length, overall size and length. So this was not a uh, sort of a cherry pick type of registry at all, just like you mentioned. So we talked about safety, efficacy, um, how how laser do? So in all the subject patients, there was uh, almost 70% of these patients reached the uh, efficacy of less than 30% at the time of the procedure, and that was including the uh, adjunctive therapies. What's super interesting is that at the six-month and 12-month timeframes, it actually remained that that amount of uh, patency as well. And so that's a part that was interesting to me is that if you look at you know the ABIs at baseline, six months and 12 months, they improved over time. You look at the ABI and TBIs, but if you look at the walking questionnaires, they all tend to stay good over time. And in addition to that, the patency rates also stayed quite good. If you look at the initial amount, it was uh, 70%. And then at six months and 12 months, the, re- the number of patients that were, you know, occlusive were on the, in the 10 to 15% range, which means that they actually stayed open over this period of time, which is very unusual for long lesions like this. One of the things that kind of stuck out to me was the adjunct uh, treatments following atherectomy. And you can correct me if I got this wrong, but uh, roughly 25% DCBs afterwards. It, does that mirror y'all's, y'all's practice that a lot of it's POBA following atherectomy? Well, I think you'd have to sort of, I don't know if this was, was uh, broken down into the above the knee and below the knee. I think that the below the knee, we don't really have drug-eluting balloons that were available at that time and really don't even now have uh, small drug-eluting balloons. But if you look at the majority of these, like 70-something percent were SFA and popliteal, and then uh, about 25 or 30% were below the knee, that might have been a reason for some of this uh, drug-eluting balloon use. The other thing that you may have noticed was how few of these patients actually got stents. Yes. My thought was that, I mean, I guess you're dealing with 10 centers, but maybe it was a, a kind of a no metal left behind approach or there was concerted effort not to uh, drop stents in this. But can you speak a little bit to that and like laser's role in reducing barotrauma and, and the, you know, I guess you're priming the vessel so that you're set up for less dissections once you actually get into the plasty portion of the procedure? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've had a couple of trials over the years that have suggested that atherectomy in general and laser in specific can change the compliance of a vessel and also reduce the dissections. That's 
been shown in smaller studies and also over time. So this sort of proved that out a little bit in that there is a change to the compliance, probably a reduction in the mean balloon pressure required, the dissection rate, and the need for bailout stenting. And, you know, if you think about the bare metal stent use here, it was about 30%. And I think that in general, what we see is that those that are proponents of atherectomy are also proponents against long segment stenting. That's not a hard and fast rule, but we definitely do see that, that when you use atherectomy, you tend to stent a little bit less. And as we've gotten better tools for drug elution, I think that's continued to be probably more so than even in the last decade when we didn't have drug elution. So is there anything with, with the, the paper that's, that's been put out now, is there anything that we didn't talk about that I missed or um, some portion of the paper that we haven't talked about that you think was kind of important to bring up? Well, I think that in general, the, the length of the lesions and the all-comers really does play into the fact that, that this device is safe and efficacious for pretty much anything that you want to throw at it. And I think that really is hard to tell in some of the studies that we do for specific devices where the inclusion criteria are so specific, you can't really tell whether it's broadly applicable, which is here, you know, you've got patients that had tibial disease, patients that have SFA disease, you had long lesions, you had, you know, all of these different categories of 102 patients with 120 plus lesions. And you could see that it performed kind of across the board. And I don't think there's a lot of devices that we see that really you can take the information from a, from a trial that has very specific inclusion and exclusion criteria and then broadly apply them. And sometimes I think we need these multi-center or these single-arm perspective registries to be able to tell what are these devices going to do in the real world. And so I think this is probably uh, an indication this is a real-world device. That's cool. So um, is this the end of the registry in the Pathfinder data, or is it, hey, we're looking at 24, 36? But like, like, is there anything else uh, playing for this data or just continued ongoing enrollment or anything like that? No continued ongoing enrollment. I think that the trial was designed to and, and budgeted for a, 20, or a uh, six and 12 month time frame. I think that other adjunctive studies could be done, but with this particular data, I think this is the conclusion of what uh, was in, was intended, which is, is there safety, is there efficacy, uh, and could it be broadly used for all comers? And I think it, it did prove out those things. All right. Very nice. So let me uh, switch gears a little bit off the data. And I just want to ask, if you had to give some advice to someone who's just kind of starting out their practice, whether it's hospital-based or OBL-based, and they're like, they've read the paper or in training, they liked using a couple different atherectomy dice included, which is laser. What would you, what advice could you give them about building an atherectomy program around laser? Like, what would you say, hey, this is what you need to have. This is the things that you need to think about. Um, like just advice you might give like a young colleague. Sure. I mean, it's a good question. I think for the most part, being too prescriptive is a little tricky. But on the other hand, you need ablative technology in the OBL uh, and ASC because it's what you have in the hospital outpatient department. So you cannot be without. It's nice to have a system that does ablative therapy as well as thrombus removal, like for instance, the Orion laser does. That is an advantage that I think that uh, I would definitely consider. But if I was just counseling somebody on what they should have, they should have a laser and they would, should have one calcium ablative technology in the outpatient lab 
And those two things will get you through 99% of the lesions that you're going to deal with. Yeah. All right. I hope that you know, people heard that because, you know, sometimes like the, it's like paralysis analysis, like you have so much at your disposal and then, you know, each device has its own research associated with it. So sometimes it's kind of nice to know that, you know, breaking into two broad categories, you can have this and you can have that, and that's going to get you through, you know, greater than 90% of the cases that are come at you. So another question kind of in that vein is, so someone who's a little bit further along and is looking to dig a little bit more into the data behind uh, laser atherectomy, do you have some recommendations or resources that you could recommend to them? Like, hey, look, these are the papers that are going to talk about this kind of stuff and, and talk about ways you can counsel your patients or talk about outcomes that you can expect. You know, basically like let you like the, the papers that let you know if you're on the right track. I think there's a fair number. If you go back to the Spectronetics laser data, it started with LACI, which was a laser atherectomy for critical limb ischemia patients. And essentially in those papers, we were looking at whether patients would benefit from a reduction in amputation. And if you look at that, it was a significant benefit for adding laser into those patients. And then it led to two other sets of papers, including the SFA instant uh, restenosis eczema laser trials. And those showed that laser in addition to balloon angioplasty, unfortunately at that time we didn't have any drug-eluting balloons, did improve. But the problem there is that the long-term restenosis rate was still quite high. We did a trial using cryoplasty and uh, laser and showed that in that trial that there was a significant reduction in patients that were diabetic and greater than 20 centimeter long lesions, and the restenosis rates were almost halved in the in the secondary restenosis in the cryoplasty trial. And then if you go back even further, if you look at the long laser trials that were done with Giancarlo Biamino and some of the real pioneers in that space, those trials suggested that there were so many different adjunctive therapies that you couldn't really tell what the laser really did in those. So like I said, back to Laser has a little bit more uh, religion sometimes than science, but it definitely works. And if we go into the physics of it, you can see why I think it does. And certainly the experience we've had in you know thousands of laser cases over the years is that it changes the compliance, it reduces the stent use, it decreases the likelihood of distal embolization, and it enhances the thrombus removal and uncovers the lesion. If you want those things in your procedure, you probably want to think about using it. All right. It seems like a pretty good note to end on. Tony, well, I will leave it you. Final thoughts, anything that I didn't ask that you're like, man, this is really something we should have covered or did we cover it? No, I think you nailed it. I mean, I think that the, the science behind laser and also what data that we have, whatever little data sometimes there is to be able to extrapolate from is always helpful. Maybe we'll come back and talk about uh, what we're doing over here on the digital aspect sometime. That might be a fun one to do as well. Man, I was, even when you brought it up at the very beginning of the podcast, I was thinking that would be so cool to talk about. And also, like, we have an innovation show um, where basically, yeah, yeah, so we have Backtable Innovations where we talk about just this kind of stuff. And it's not always related to, like, um, the vascular and interventional space, but a lot of times it is because that's what a lot of the, a lot of the uh, hosts kind of have their background in. But that may be, like, a perfect setting to kind of come and talk about what you guys have going on with that. So, that sounds great. I mean, we've done a lot of uh, remote monitoring and, and chronic care management and really have learned a lot about it. I actually got the highest sensitivity and specificity AFib device through the FDA a couple of years ago that we're using in a trial right now with Pfizer. So I think it'd be a fun topic to talk about, especially because there's so much AI being added to it. And that, that term 
is being overused so much, it's probably worth kind of defining what exactly that means. But love to do it if you want to at some point. Tony, that would be great. We would uh, we would love to have you on for that. Um, the innovation show is also it's also just really cool to talk about. I mean, you so you talked about getting something through FDA approval. Like it's just a side of the medicine world that a lot of people don't have any idea about, and like the amount of gumption and hard work that it takes to bring devices to either market or just through FDA approval. Some of those are just inc- incredibly harrowing stories by like very dedicated docs like well, like yourself. So um, thanks for doing that kind of work. All right. For those of you that would like to support the show, please like, subscribe, or rate the show on Apple iTunes. That helps us. Um, or feel free to go old school. Just actually talk to another human and uh, tell a colleague about Backtable. We already mentioned the innovation show, but we also have Backtable MSK, Backtable Urology, Backtable ENT, OBGYN, um, a lot of good stuff. So um, tell your colleagues about it. Um, we'd love to increase our audience. And if you have any ways that you would like us to improve the show, send that to us via social media. We always take that input very seriously. Thank you guys again for listening. Tony, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, Social media and PR by Anne Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 